Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This episode contains real experiences shared through Reddit. Listener discretion is advised. First story is a real Reddit submission by user Staring Void, with narration by Alexandria Tucker. A few years ago, I was renting a house in Northern California. The neighborhood was just outside the suburbs. It seemed like the perfect balance of having space and having nice neighbors close enough not to feel isolated. The area had no streetlights, so it was very dark at night, especially if there were clouds blocking the moonlight. It didn't bother me, though. It made my little house feel even more quaint on dark nights. I got home from work one day in midwinter. It was a cloudy night, so pulling up to my house, I saw only what my headlights and front porch light illuminated. When I got out of the car, I caught a whiff of cigarette smoke. That was odd, as I had never smelled that before around the house. I didn't see anyone nearby, so I ignored it and went inside. I had just got off a shift with a few hours of overtime, so I felt pretty tired. Even though it wasn't even seven yet, I decided to take a shower and call it a night. I woke up sometime later sure that I had heard a noise inside my house. I wasn't worried right away, because my friend would sometimes stop by to use my shower after work, on his way to his night classes. I even gave him a spare key so he could stop by even if I wasn't home. He would always text me to let me know beforehand, though, and I hadn't heard my phone go off. I reached over to my bedside table and picked up my cell phone to see if my friend had sent me a text. The bright light from my phone screen and the number pad blinded me. Those were the days before phones had a light sensor that would dim the screen in the dark, and this particular phone was so bright I could use it as a flashlight. Through squinted eyes, I could make out that it was 9-something, but I couldn't tell if I had an unread text or not. I set my phone aside and called out my friend's name. There was a couple of seconds of silence before I heard loud footfalls as someone started running through the bottom floor of my house. I leapt out of bed and ran to the closet. They were already up the stairs by the time I had opened the door and stepped inside. That house had three rooms upstairs, two bedrooms on either side of the hallway, the one I was in and a spare, and a bathroom at the end. The bedroom doors were both closed, but the bathroom door was cracked open. I heard whoever was in my house thunder down the hallway past my door and into the bathroom, Thank God he did. That gave me enough time to open the attic access in the ceiling of my closet and hoist myself up. I had just started to lift myself up when the person ran back out from the bathroom. My feet were barely inside of the attic when my bedroom door burst open. I heard footsteps run into my room and stop. When they didn't see me in that room, they ran back to the hallway and into the other room, which just had boxes stacked in a corner, some weights, and a table where I painted my miniature models. I guess they decided that if someone were hiding, it would be in the bedroom because they charged back into my room and turned on the light. A moment later, the closet door was ripped open. 
I was crouched in my attic just a foot away or so from the access, so I could try to stop them if they started to climb up. From my vantage point, all I could see was from about their knee down. They were wearing dirty blue jeans with frayed cuffs and worn work boots. After a few seconds of looking in the closet, they stepped away and I heard a loud crash come from my room, followed by a scream of frustration and anger. That scream was the most unnerving part of the incident for me. It reminded me far too much of my stepfather, who would scream in a similar way when he lost his temper. He would eventually be put in a mental hospital for several mental disorders that resulted in erratic and violent tendencies. The man in my house ran back down the stairs. I heard crashes and clatters as things were thrown around and furniture was knocked over. I stayed crouched in the attic. I had left my cell phone when I ran for the closet and I wasn't certain I could climb down without him hearing. After some time, the noises stopped. I started counting slowly. When I reached 1,000, I decided it was safe enough to climb down and call the police. The first thing I noticed when I exited the closet was that the intruder had flipped my bed over. I assume in an attempt to find me. That was the loud noise I'd heard after he stepped away from the closet. I couldn't find my cell phone, so I went to the landline by the bed and called the police. I waited in my room until I heard them call out from downstairs. The first floor was a mess, but I had expected that. Chairs had been knocked over, the sofa had been flipped, all the books, pictures, and knickknacks I had on my shelves were strewn across the floor. The cupboards in the kitchen had been opened, and all the boxed and canned foods had been thrown to the ground. As far as I could tell, though, the only thing missing was a single knife out of the wooden block in my kitchen. The police checked the house from top to bottom. They found that the side door had been forced open by something like a crowbar. They also found a few cigarette butts along my fence line, along with some foil and an empty pen tube, which the police said people often use to smoke meth. So I think that they had been watching my house for a while. I realized that he must have been out there smoking a cigarette when I got home. They collected up the evidence and told me I should stay with family or friends that night and get the door fixed as soon as possible. I opted to just not sleep. I moved a shelf over to block the broken door and I spent the next couple of hours cleaning things up. I would often go to the window with a flashlight and shine it along the fence line where the police found the cigarette butts and foil, but I didn't see anything. The next day, I called to have the door fixed and motion lights installed at the back and sides of my house. I ran a phone cable up into the attic and added a landline. I never wanted to be stuck up there without a phone again. Nothing else happened at that house, though. I lived there another three years without incident. One more precaution I took was practicing getting out of my bed, going to the closet, and climbing into the attic as quickly and quietly as possible. I even kept at it when I moved, except now I go to a crawl space at the back of the closet instead of the attic. I try not to think about what would have happened if I had been a bit slower getting to the attic, or if he hadn't gone into the bathroom at the end of the hall first. Support for this episode comes from Audible. You guys already love podcasts, so I'd be willing to bet you'll love Audible too. They have the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet. I just finished The Stranger Beside Me by Anne Rule. It's the shocking true story of serial killer Ted Bundy. And this is an excellent follow-up to our very first episode with Kathy Kleiner. I binged this whole book in probably three days. They have all your favorite genres, bestsellers, mysteries, dramas, and everything in between. The best part of Audible for me is you can listen on the go, wherever you are. Whether you're driving or working out, whatever it may be, this is a game changer. 
Audible members get to choose one audiobook every month, regardless of price, as well as two Audible originals you can't get anywhere else. You can enjoy easy audiobook exchanges, rollover credits, and an audiobook library you keep forever, and you can access anytime, anywhere. You can get started with a 30-day free trial, and you'll get your first audiobook as well as two Audible originals completely free by visiting audibletrial.com disturbed. Again, that's audibletrial.com disturbed. Our next story is a real Reddit submission by user Dance of Horrors, with narration by Addison Peacock. To give the context of where the story is based, I live in a smallish college town near a small to medium-sized city. The town itself doesn't have a lot of people and is mostly here to cater to the demand that comes from the college. Because of this, the stores around the college are mostly open 24-7 so that the college kids will be able to impulse buy whatever they like. The other big seller around here is gas. Of course, gas can be bought in the city, but being a town that has often gone through in order to get to the city, a lot of places will try to keep the price of gas slightly lower than any of the stations in the city. My story begins when I was working overnights in a gas station slash liquor store when I was doing part-time classes in college, but mostly doing classes online so they wouldn't ruin my availability for a full-time job. The store that I worked at had only one person working on overnights for a long time. Even though a lot of people, especially girls, would complain of the lack of cameras and the fact that you don't always get the best people going into a liquor store slash gas station in the middle of the night. The owner's hand was forced on one night before I started working there that a woman who came in to buy milk went outside to her car only for a man to come up behind her and shove a gun to her back demanding her money. She complied with him, and luckily he let her go. She ran into the store, sobbing hysterically, and though police arrived shortly after, he was never found. I personally preferred having two people on, even if there wasn't a safety issue. The nights seemed to go by so much quicker when there was someone else there, and it was really nice that the person I normally closed with and I got along so well. Overall, there were four overnight shift workers. Josh, Nick, Dixie, and myself. Dixie had another job and really was only working there as a favor to one of the managers, so she would only work two nights a week with either Josh or I. Josh and I worked together three nights a week, and Nick worked with Josh or I two nights a week. Dixie was really nice and fun to be around, but she didn't particularly like the job or want to be there. Josh would get annoyed with her a lot for just standing behind the register while he did all the work, but it was only one night a week, so he didn't complain too much. Nick, on the other hand, was a bit different. He worked there five days a week, just like Josh and I, but they never seemed to put him with one person more than one day a week. Nobody seemed to really like him or like working with him. Nick was a little off from the start. He was one of those people who told you his entire life story as soon as he met you, giving a bunch of really personal details that no one was comfortable hearing. One thing he always seemed to talk about was the strain on his marriage. 
Apparently, he had a really bad drinking and drug problem for a very long time, and the drug part got better when he could switch over to weed, but he couldn't seem to get his drinking under control. He was hard to be around, but you kind of get used to some people in that kind of job being sketchy. I was there for almost three months when Nick's stories seemed to escalate out of nowhere. He began telling people that when he was younger, he was diagnosed as a psychopath, and he had to take a bunch of pills for it every day so he wouldn't become violent. Not exactly what you want to hear from someone you're alone with in the middle of the night, but okay, we all have our problems, and some people get dealt a bad hand when it comes to mental illness. I myself have always struggled to get my anxiety and depression under control, and without medicine, I wouldn't be killing people by any means, but I'd probably be hospitalized in danger-to-self categories, so as creepy as that was, I assured him that a lot of people need to take medicine for some kind of illness, and as long as you stick to it and are honest with medical professionals, there's no reason you can't still do anything anyone else can do. He seemed pleased with this answer, and soon after the subject was turned to other things. He was especially cheery and nice to me after that for the next week or so, letting me know daily that he was taking his medicine and felt like things were going well with them. I always answered enthusiastically, but I'm pretty sure everyone, especially Josh, was aware of how much I wish he would stop talking to me about it and would leave me alone. Josh had a wife and daughter who was two at the time, so he couldn't help but see us younger girls through the eyes of what his daughter might potentially have to deal with when she was our age, and seemed to go out of his way to end my conversations with Nick rather quickly, which I was grateful for, and didn't really try to pretend that he liked Nick. It wasn't long before Nick started conversations with me, going into details about why he was diagnosed, instead of how his medicine was working, which I won't get into here, because a lot of it was very violent and sexual. I told him repeatedly that I didn't want to know about that, to which he would act like he understood and change the subject, only for him to circle back to it about an hour later. When I confided to Dixie about it, she told me that she would take care of it and told her friend, which was the manager, who asked her to come work there. The manager couldn't really do much since I seemed to be the only one that he would talk to about these things and told me to come to her again if he ever made me feel uncomfortable again. It was starting to get increasingly tense for everyone working with him. After he was talked to by the manager, and soon enough, two other women who worked with him on the night shift reported comments he made to them to the manager. I was questioned, in which I agreed that all of the statements made by the women were similar to things that had been said to me. Nick was given a final warning and a write-up. The next couple times I saw him, he would go on rants about how people there were only reporting him because they didn't like him. I assume he didn't know that I had been questioned too, and neither Josh or I had any intention to tell him. He got so angry at one point that he was practically in tears, saying how lucky those cunts were that he was on his meds and what he would do to them if he wasn't. Luckily, it was about that point that his shift ended, and pretty much as soon as he clocked out, Josh told him that we had a lot of work to get done that night, so we didn't really have time to chat with him. He nodded and walked out the door without another word. Josh wasn't lying either. The truck had come extremely late that day, so there was still quite a bit of things that needed to be put on the shelf. One thing that the earlier shifts never seemed to do, unless they absolutely had to, was stocking the drink coolers. 
It was true. That was easier to do at night when there were a lot less customers. So it was annoying since we couldn't chat, but we just went with it. I can't remember the time that Josh went into the drink cooler, but it must have been pretty late since we had been there for a while at that point. I was still focused on stocking the shelves and making sure everything looked full if we didn't have it, when the bell chimed, signaling someone had come in. I threw out a good evening and I'd be right there, since anyone that came in that late usually only wanted a pack of cigarettes or to pay for the gas and cash. I put down my box and went to the registers, slowing dramatically once I could see them. You guessed it. There was Nick, not looking at me, but leaning next to my register. I'd be lying if I said I had a reason to be afraid. It did turn out he was drunk, but I couldn't detect it right away from the smell of booze that always seemed to linger in the air around there, and Josh was right on the other side of the wall. Even so, I considered for about 30 seconds if I should actually go or if I should run into the cooler and get Josh. Nick wasn't a young, fit guy or anything. Years of drugs and drinking had aged him prematurely and ruined his body, but he was still intimidating for a 20-year-old girl. Unfortunately, Nick made the decision for me when, probably tired of waiting, he turned toward me, and that's when I noticed immediately that there was something off about him. My voice was nothing more than a pathetic whisper when I asked him what he wanted. He just stared at me, nothing of his face to tell me what he was thinking. I was just about to speak again when he spoke, barely intelligible because of his slurring. He leave you here alone? It took me a second to shake my head and tell him in a hopefully steady voice that Josh was in the cooler and asked if he wanted me to go get him. Again, staring at me in silence. At this point, I didn't even care what he said. I just wanted him to say something. The silent staring was creeping me out. I asked with more force in my voice, What do you want, Nick? As soon as I stopped speaking, he grinned at me and in a disgusting, almost singing voice, he said, You're lying. You are alone. He laughed and took a step toward me, but stumbled, allowing me to take several steps back. At this point, I should have run to Josh. I should have called for him anything, but I couldn't believe that I was reading the situation right. Nick was really weird, but I had never felt an actual danger around him before. He had never come off as more than a little unstable. He continued to come forward in slow, stumbling steps, telling me to come here. I just want to talk. I kept out of his reach, telling him to back off and that I would hurt him if I had to. He thought that was particularly amusing, and laughed loudly enough that Josh told me later was what caused him to look through the spaces of the racks and see what was going on. Josh was out of the door in a second and seemed to come out of nowhere, shoving himself in between Nick and I. They didn't even say anything, just stared each other down before Josh said in a stern tone, I think you should leave now. Nick stared blankly for a moment then scoffed, telling us that we couldn't take a joke. I was trying not to cry at this point. The only thing more terrifying about the situation was knowing that if Josh hadn't been there and he had somehow caught me, I would have stood no chance against him. Josh left me standing with my back against the wall, corralling Nick to the door. 
Completely unexpected on both of our parts, Nick turned and took a swing at Josh. He missed Josh's face, and Josh grabbed the back of his coat and brought him down as he smashed his knee into Nick's stomach or chest area, I'm not sure which, and used the opportunity of his sputtering to drag him to the door and throw him out, locking it. Josh had just turned and told me to call the cops when we heard this sickening crack behind him. We both jumped and looked at the door to find this big circle of glass. It's hard to explain, but if you've ever seen a movie of one or an actual car wreck when something hits a windshield, but not hard enough to break through and it turns white all around the point of impact, that's what the door looked like. Josh didn't have to tell me what to do. This time I ran to the register and grabbed my phone, going to the corner furthest away from the front door and huddled on the floor. I didn't even notice at the time, but Josh told me later that when he turned to see the glass, that was the first time he noticed that Nick had a hunting knife in his other hand. The fact that he had tried to punch Josh instead of stab him is a mystery and a miracle. I was sobbing when the operator picked up the phone. I don't even know how she understood me. I was crying so hard. But between my distress and the sounds of Josh and Nick yelling at each other in the background with loud smashes of Nick hitting the door, she got the urgency of the situation. She asked me where I was, and luckily she knew the address, because just as I got up to look at a receipt to see what the address was, the glass smashed. I dropped back to the floor, and she told me that officers were already on the way and to do whatever I could to get away or hide even if I had to leave Josh. The hole wasn't big enough for him to get through, and he had made it by grabbing the ashtray from outside and throwing it at the part of the window he had been repeatedly punching, causing it to break through. He didn't make it to break through, though. From that hole, he could reach the lock on the door. According to Josh, he walked to the door and put his mouth against the hole that he had just formed, and said something that I'm sobbing right now even thinking about. In that horrible sing-song voice that he used the first time I talked to him that night, he said in such a happy tone, They're never gonna find you two. Needless to say, as tough as he was acting, Josh was shitting bricks as much as I was. He was older than Nick in his mid-thirties, but he was a beanpole and wasn't exactly known for his fighting skills. Even so, as soon as Nick unlocked and started to open the door, Josh slammed his body into it, knocking Nick backward from the impact. Josh yelled for me to run, and even though my legs felt like they would give out at any moment, I ran right behind him to the receiving doors at the back of the store. Nick was cursing and yelling for us as the door jingle went off. Josh slammed into the back door, cursing in pain as he realized that it wouldn't open We found out later that Nick had pushed the dumpster in front of the door, locking the wheels of it again before he came in. We seemed to both realize at once that he actually planned this out to kill us. Nick rounded the corner, still doing that awkward, stumbling walk, though faster now. It at least gave me time to slam the back room door shut and lock it. I was sitting in front of it, Josh bringing over anything he could find to barricade the door shut when Nick reached it. He must have heard me crying, because he kept calling out my name, telling me that I wasn't who he wanted. He would make sure that I died before I even felt the pain if I opened the door. He then started stabbing the door, screaming at me to open it. 
I screamed and moved when he stabbed it the first time, but Josh and I both moved immediately to hold it shut again. I remember Josh and I making eye contact. We were both crying by now, and I wanted so badly to say something to comfort him, but I couldn't think of anything to say. I had dropped my phone when I ran to hold the door shut, and neither of us could move to go get it, so we had no idea how long until the police got there, and the door was made of wood, so it wouldn't last long against his body slams and offered no protection if his knife went into one of our hands. All I could think about was that I was going to die here. That my dog would never know why I didn't come home. That I would never get my degree and have enough money to actually start enjoying life. That all of the plans for the future my girlfriend and I had made would never happen. In the most anticlimactic and wonderful finish ever, it suddenly went silent. There was no police car alarms, no yelling, nothing. It was as if Nick had just vanished. Josh and I looked at each other, not even daring to breathe, listening for any sign of life on the other side of the door. We both slammed to the ground when a gunshot went off once, then twice, then a third time. There was more silence. Then a voice rang out, asking if anyone was there. We weren't sure if we should say anything. Then the voice continued with his name, and that he was an off-duty EMT who had been listening to the scanner. Josh got up and pushed the things aside in front of the door, opening it just enough to put his head out of it and then it seemed like all the breath just left him. He opened the door and went out into the store, relief all over him. I ran and grabbed my phone, seeing that the call had disconnected or the dispatcher had hung up. When I went out into the store, where Josh and our rescuer was, he was in the middle of explaining how the police over the scanner were sending a bunch of cars, but they were all pretty far away and he had a horrible feeling that they wouldn't get there in time when the dispatcher was telling them what they'd find when they got there. He didn't want either of us to go outside until the police got there, because though Nick had been shot in the shoulder, he still had the knife when he took off. The EMT said he would have run after him, but with the state that the store was in, he was scared that someone in here could be dying or hurt. The next 20 minutes were a blur. Josh and I were sitting on the floor, hugging each other, when the police got there. The EMT had called dispatch and told them of the new situation, and most of the cars that were coming to our location were diverted to looking for Nick. It was soon after that that Josh got to use his phone to call his wife, and she came over, only bringing their daughter because he begged her to. He seemed to completely break down when he held his daughter and hugged his wife. I had an extremely similar reaction when I finally got to go home and came in to see my dog's body wiggling excitedly, proudly displaying his flamingo toy for me to have as a welcome home gift. Nick was found two weeks later in an old RV in the woods that he had been using to do his drinking and do drugs in so that his wife wouldn't catch him. Apparently, the reason that he had come after us was because he thought that the reason that Josh wanted him to leave so quickly was so he could call the owner again, and this time the complaint would get him fired. Unknown to us, his wife had kicked him out four days before this happened, and was in the process of getting a restraining order against him over threatening texts and phone calls she had been getting. He stated that his job was all that he had left, and Josh needed to be punished for trying to take that away from him. 
He said that I wasn't the target and he didn't want to have to kill me, but he knew that he had a much better chance of killing Josh with me there than Dixie, since Josh would be more likely to face him to protect me. Neither Josh or I called the owner or even a manager over his comments that night, though maybe we should have. It was disturbing what he was saying, in hindsight. But we were so used to him being a creep and saying really horrible things at that point that it didn't even register to us that he could be serious about trying to hurt someone. I had known him for three months, and Josh had known him for six, and he had never done anything violent toward anyone. Everyone just thought he was all talk. We also put faith in the fact that every employee had a background check on them before they were hired, so... It's not like Nick had ever been violent before. He took a plea deal so that the two counts of attempted murder would be dropped and he would instead go to a mental hospital for offenders. The reason that I'm writing this story now, other than the other stories on this sub inspiring me, is that I got a call two weeks ago, notifying me that as long as there's no setbacks to his health status, Nick is set to be released on June 8th of this year. When I called Josh, he said he had received the same news the day before. Neither Josh or I work there anymore, and Josh has since moved away to another town on the other side of the city, and I've switched to going to college completely online and am in a new place that I'm renting with a roommate. I don't think he'll come after either of us. I don't see how he could blame us for what happened. I read so many of these stories, and after the fact, everyone seems so prepared for what to do if they ever see the person they're writing about again. I don't think I'd be any more prepared to face him this time than I was back then. I've had pretty intense nightmares ever since that day, but ever since I got that call, every time I close my eyes, all I can hear is that one sentence, louder and clearer than I have ever heard it since it actually was said. They're never going to find you too. Nick, if it was true that you were diagnosed as a psychopath, I hope you're getting the help you need. You already destroyed my peace of mind, and even now, years later, I don't feel safe, especially at night. I don't believe in God, but I pray to anyone that's listening that we never meet again. This episode is made possible by Supporty. Are you struggling to stay motivated to the goals you've set for yourself? Maybe you're trying to wake up earlier, but you keep hitting that snooze button. Or maybe you're trying to cut back on sweets, but you find yourself opening the fridge when you're stressed out. Well, one of the best ways to make lasting behavioral changes is by an accountability partner who will help you stick to positive daily actions. So how do you find a reliable accountability partner who's going to engage with you and keep you honest? Supporty is a mobile app that matches you with accountability buddies for a week at a time. Supporty pairs you and a buddy up one-on-one. -on -one. That's for maximum accountability. Plus, it's mutual, so you encourage your buddy and they encourage you each day of your seven-day session. What's really cool is you can see whether your partner accomplished their daily actions and they can see whether you've done yours too. If you want a more effective way to stay motivated, experience the difference of an accountability partner. Download Supporty, that's support with an I at the end, from the Apple App Store or Google Play Store, and make sure you choose Disturbed Podcast when you create your account to start your two-week free trial.
you can check out the show notes of this episode for more details. Get encouragement, get motivated, and achieve more with Supporty. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Our final story is a real Reddit submission by user Possum Rex. With narration by yours truly. In September of 2002, my wife was in her seventh month of pregnancy with our first child. We lived in Ohio at the time, and she wanted a baby shower. Since most of her family and close friends lived in Baltimore, Maryland, we planned that we could travel to Baltimore and have the baby shower there on Saturday, October 19th, 2002. But October 3rd and 4th brought the horrifying realization that a serial killer was on the loose in the Baltimore, D.C. area. We naturally re-examined our plans, but decided to go through with them all the same. After all, the likelihood of being the sniper's victim was practically zero from a statistical standpoint. My wife and I listened to the news of the Beltway sniper in the days leading up to our trip. It was getting a bit more scary as the death count raised to nine, and there were two additional people who had been wounded. In the 11th hour, we decided we would still go, but we would take the Pennsylvania Turnpike over to I-70, and then I-70 through Hagerstown, Maryland, 
then Frederick, Maryland, and into Baltimore. Around 5 p.m. on Friday, October 18th, 2002, my wife and I picked up my mom and my stepsister, and we set out for Baltimore. The trip was going slowly, but was otherwise uneventful. We had used the time to review the plans of what to do when we needed to stop during our trip out. The plan was that we all go together. We don't dilly-dally. We get out of the car and into the building quickly, and vice versa. And no one stays in the car alone. Well, as it would eventually happen around 12.45am on Saturday morning, we all needed a restroom break. We pulled off into a restaurant near Frederick and parked right in front of the door to the bathroom facility. The rest area was largely empty, but there was a dark blue, late model, four-door sedan parked head-in facing the door to the restroom. I parked next to it, and we all quickly reviewed the rules. If I finished first, I would wait for them, and we would all return to the car together. We then got out and raced to the restrooms. As I ran into the restroom area, I didn't pay much attention to the car we parked next to, other than to make sure they didn't open their doors. The night was crisp and full of moisture. I finished first, and so I stood out by the exit but stayed inside the building. The doors and the walls were all glass, so I nervously scanned the parking lot for anything off-looking. Satisfied that there was nothing ominous in the parking lot, I turned my attention to the blue sedan. I travel a lot, so I naturally took note that their license plates were from New Jersey. In the front seat were two African-American males. The one behind the steering wheel was middle-aged. He was awake and staring back at me. Next to him was a sleeping teenager. I remember feeling a chill go down my spine as I watched him watching me. At this time, the authorities hadn't released info on the snipers, and they didn't know of the ominous role the car played during their killing spree. So I was ignorant of the danger these two really presented. A few minutes passed before my family returned and we all ran back to the car. In a flash, we sped away and continued on to our destination. I remember noticing something weird about their trunk. My family was poor growing up, so we sometimes had to pop out a broken lock and couldn't afford to fix it right away. So we would rig the trunk to open using a screwdriver. I remember thinking that's what they must have done with their trunk. It turns out, it was the hole that they shot out through while staying concealed. The baby shower went well and my wife had fun. We did not go out for meals, but slept and ate at their mom's house in Baltimore. On Sunday morning, it was time to go. We took a much more northern route going home, just to be safe. About a week or so later, once they captured the Beltway snipers, you can imagine the renewed chills running down my spine when in the newspaper, the face of the man that had been staring at me when we stopped at the rest stop, John Alan Muhammad was staring back at me again. There was also a photo of the car we had parked right next to, and scarier still, the reports that they had been captured in the exact same rest stop where we had parked next to them about a week earlier. 
I can only imagine that the teenage boy that had been asleep next to him was Lee Boyd Malvo. Fortunately, they were both in the front seat, and this is where they had planned to hide out and sleep, and so wouldn't likely have killed at this rest stop. Therefore, I feel we weren't in danger during this encounter. Had it been elsewhere, though, we very well may have been. John Allen Muhammad, age 41, and Lee Boyd Malvo, age 17, terrorized Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia during a three-week period in October of 2002, as well as several other states. They came to be known as the Beltway, or D.C. Snipers. When it was all said and done, the snipers killed 17 people and wounded 10 more. In September 2003, Muhammad was sentenced to death, and in October, Malvo was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences without parole. In November 2009, Muhammad was put to death by lethal injection. But as it turns out, through some new laws passed, Lee Boyd Malvo could be eligible for parole as early as 2022. You've been listening to Disturbed. Special thanks to all the contributing narrators and submitters of these stories. You'll find all the relevant links in the show notes. You can see more info on our website, disturbedpodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, help us grow by sharing the show with a friend. And make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening so you always get the newest episodes automatically. Learn more about our Patreon, fan club, and benefits package for as little as $1 a month over at disturbedpodcast.com slash fan club. If you have your own disturbing experience you want to share for the podcast, leave us a voicemail through our hotline at 701-712-8008. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Disturbed Podcast and on Twitter at Disturbed underscore pod to stay up to date with all the latest Disturbed news. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. And stay safe out there, y'all.